0: Hi guys welcome to the revive stronger podcast i'm your host as always and today i'm very happy to be joined by brad schoenfeld i was just saying how brad has only been on the podcast twice but they've been two of the most well-received episodes for good reason and i'm very glad to have him back on the show today so uh, brad how are you doing over there
1: i'm doing great it's my pleasure to be on again
0: fantastic and the reason brad is so popular and for those I don't know how many people there be, not very many who don't know Brad is because he is one of the most, if not the most prolific hypertrophy researcher um, and knows a lot about how to build muscle, how to lose fat, and has done some of the best work. And when you're looking at people and when they're referencing work, it's very often Brad's work. So uh, that's some of the stuff that we're going to be delving into today. And the first topic, because it's been something that has been quite popular of late, and I thought it'd be fantastic to get Brad's point of view on this, was effective reps, and maybe then touch a bit on failure training and see if Brad has any updated views on that. But first of all, kind of going over the effective reps kind of subject in terms of kind of the last five repetitions are the most effective, and uh, what are your kind of thoughts around that subject, Brad?
1: So I, I think there's some basic merit in the in the theory that there is a that some reps have greater effectiveness than others overall. I think the, uh, at least the way I understand it, though I've not read these, I more read research and I don't read a lot of the lay stuff, so I don't know the specifics, but from what I do understand, like you said, it's about the last five reps, I think that's overly simplistic. Um, Earlier reps certainly can contribute to to the hypertrophic response, uh, and I think that might again this is purely speculative but there could be maybe a more effectiveness for the type 1 fibers which are more endurance oriented and the stimulation threshold uh would be lower for them uh in that regard so there there could be more hypertrophic potential there and also that we do know through some of the failure research that's been done that necessarily that like the last few reps are, might not be necessary to you can least in a lot of the studies or a certain number of them, you're able to achieve hypertrophy without going to the last three, let's say two, three reps. So again, I think that the overall concept that you need to train hard certainly is um, important. And by the way, that I assume it would be accounted for in the model, but that also negates the fact that if you're talking a six rep, six RM, the... Basically, or if, let's say a 5-RM, that's all the reps. So I, I'm not sure how that then factors in. So that means that every rep is effective. We're at a 10-rep. Your first five don't matter. Or let's say an eight-rep, your first three. I, I think that, again, is, is simplistic. Uh, so certainly I, I think the overriding uh, thing, the take-home on repetitions, is that you need to train hard at least some of the time. And that would mean at least we can talk more about failure, but at least yep. come close to failure.
0: Excellent. Yeah, I think uh, that seems to be the overwhelming kind of, the people have spoken about the subject, a similar thought in that. Oversimplistic, and I'm sure um, people who have kind of proposed the model didn't mean it to come across as oversimplistic, but the team seems to be how people end up taking people's work, unfortunately, at happens times. Happens to me all the time. <laughs> yeah, I, I bet. I,
1: I can feel them. Yeah.
0: So um, in terms of failure training, I, I think we spoke about it actually last time that you came on, but I wondered if you had any updated Uh, Thoughts on the matter, uh, what your current kind of practical recommendations were to people, and maybe because I think the audience listening, probably a lot of them or some of them at least, are quite advanced, and whether or not that has any difference or any other implications for them.
1: Yeah, so my my thinking on this actually has evolved somewhat, certainly from the time I published a book called the Max Muscle Plan almost a decade ago now, and I was more liberal with the use of failure, and I think uh, my, my uh, thoughts on the topic, my theory is uh, is less is more sometimes. So I, I do think that there is a benefit to training hard uh, at some point, to training a failure. On some of the sets, if your goal is maximal hypertrophy, I think you can do very well without training in hypertrophy and achieve the majority. So, so here's where the nuances come in. And in most of the, uh, my favorite phrase, I tell my students this all the time and anyone else who listen that. Really, my answer to almost any applied question is it depends, because there's just so many. Who are you talking about? What's the generalizability? You're talking about untrained subjects, trained subjects, younger, older, middle-aged. Are you talking about bodybuilders? Are you talking about stockbrokers? You just want So, so there's just so many different facets. Uh, now, if we're talking about what can maximize the hypertrophic response in advanced bodybuilders, I do think there is a benefit to some failure training. I think there's less need than I used to believe that that I I think was necessary. So, and my philosophy had always been to periodize it and that, uh, but but before I I would go to failure, like in my max muscle plan, I proposed going to failure on all sets for like the two week period, two, three week uh, overreaching period. I don't think that's necessary at this point, potentially counterproductive, but certainly not necessary where it can, um, it can trash people more quickly. And, and not bring about the desired effects. And certainly if it's not necessary, why do that if it's going to overtax someone? So I think judicious use of failure training is potentially beneficial for a select group of people. I think the majority of people who are lifting uh, probably can do well without it and achieve the vast majority of their potential without even noticing. So a guy like yourself who's a, a competitive bodybuilder um pushing the limit so look the the reason the body responds is a survival mechanism it's an over basically the if you don't push it beyond its present capacity it's not going to have an impetus to adapt so how do you cause an adaptation well there's many ways and and failure is but one of them but failure could be a way to uh push the body in, in ways that it has not Uh, that it is not used to and thus potentially bring about that response. Now, if you're asking me for a general recommendation, I'm always somewhat hesitant to do that because it, again, really depends, Uh, but I limit it really to the last set Uh, in general. I think that most sets should be an RIR, repetitions in reserve, for those who don't know, that's how many reps short you are of, of achieving failure, somewhere between one to three. And let's say you're doing four sets, you might even go three, an RIR of three, RIR of two, RIR of one, and then a last set to failure. There's nothing magical about that. It can be any kind of anything in between as well. Maybe one set at two and then two sets at one and one set to failure. A lot of that is intuitive. A lot of that is specific to the individual. So one of the things, and hopefully we can kind of get into this, but the individual response to training is very diverse. And trying to give, we can give general guidelines to uh, to training, but ultimately it comes down to the individual. And when I, I work individually with clients, uh, bodybuilders in particular, physique athletes, it always is trying to get into what is best for them, for the individual. And that is that involves an N equals one. That involves experimentation.
0: Fantastic. And actually on a sec- kind of secondary note on that, because obviously bodybuilders, love training hard. Uh, a lot of us start with failure training. And with the people you've coached, when you've tried to get them to reps and reserve, have you ever had kickback? Has that ever been difficult for you? Uh,
1: glad you brought that up. So I'm working now uh, with a friend and colleague of mine, someone who's a pro bodybuilder, Joe Toldi, who's a, natural, a, uh, a classic physique bodybuilder, IFPB classic physique bodybuilder. And uh, when I started working with him, Every set not only was to failure but forced reps, like or right. much So it's that mentality of you got to push balls. So I pulled him back from that ledge, and yeah, he, he's still you know, with the, there's still that drive. And he's 47, by the way. And this is where again the individual differences he shows no signs of overtraining. Uh, I mean, he's someone who pushes fairly high volumes, uh, and, and to failure. At 47 years old, I would have expected to see, you know, he's and, and all the time, and especially when I caught up with him, when I started working with him. But since working with him, we've pulled that back. And if anything, he's seen, I think, somewhat better growth. Uh, we've brought up some of it. And again, a lot of it is strategic. So there's other things. It's It's hard to isolate. It's not like we just did that. So we yeah. have other things that were variables that were changed. So it's hard to know what ultimately is causing what. But uh, yeah, we've been able to bring up the lagging body parts that he hadn't been able to do and uh, got his pro cards. So.
0: And I imagine he also struggles with the idea of deloading. Or is he okay yeah, with that?
1: Yeah, but, well, but again, that's something that I've uh, brought to him and, and he does that now. And yeah, he's, he's, that he's good with. It's just oh, when good. it's training all the way. It's, uh, deloading, I guess, uh, is it's so short-term when you're actually going through the sets when you're not uh, deloading. You can kind of get a certain mindset, all right, I'm going to take an easy week. When you're actually going somewhat hard, all right, I'm at one RIR or two RIR. Uh, damn, I got to push. I'm not pushing hard.
0: I guess it's similar to that dieting menta- mentality where people are right. on or off and you kind of want them on that dimmer switch. Right, Same right. with the training. <laughs> yep. Awesome. So something I did want to dig into because I thought that was interesting to start with, but was, and you spoke about it, was kind of the hypertrophy research and uh, some of the things i wanted to talk about was first of all the difficulty in actually conducting it in terms of getting applicants and then making sure the procedures are there and just kind of a lot of the listeners i don't think necessarily know what actually goes into producing such research
1: yeah that's it's a great topic and i'm glad you brought it up because uh, you know research has this kind of mystical quality to people and the lack of understanding as to the how time intensive it is to carry out these studies is really is is huge so um you have to start several a couple months before uh you even the first day the first subject comes into the study with an irb and which takes a lot of time just to create an irb proposal and then a lot of times the irb kicks it back irb is by the way institutional review board basically they have to look over the ethics of carrying out the study in human subjects so it's a human subject study and uh, that take, can take a couple months uh, to to get going. and it's just very time intensive to create the proposal. And even by the way, I should even say before that, you have to strategize about the methods. You have to try to account for every possible issue, and that usually involves strategizing with your other colleagues who will be collaborators, saying, do you see any holes here? What might the reviewers say here? Is there something we should be doing here? And kind of kicking this around to come up with what we feel is the best possible study to investigate the topic at hand. Then you submit that, and then, like I said, the IRB. So, I mean, the total pre-work that's done is several months. Could be four months or more. Then you have to start recruiting subjects, which is not easy, and then it depends upon who you're. So I'll do, most of my studies are in resistance trained uh, individuals. Uh, but if they're an untrained, same thing. You're gonna pick one or the other, meaning that you're not gonna intermingle them, which makes it harder. So you're either gonna get from one pool or another pool, and you're gonna thus limit the pool. Usually, and certainly all my studies to this point have not been mixed sex, so it's either men or women. Usually it's men, because people ask me why I don't carry out studies in women. It's because when I put out a flyer saying, uh, get strong or, or get uh, gain muscle, women don't wanna participate. So I end up not being able to recruit enough. So anyway, then we have to recruit, and that means sending out my research assistants to, uh, to go doing the recruiting, posting flyers. You're gonna get people that aren't qualified, so you then have to have them come in, you do a informed consent, which explains the study, and you have to make sure they qualify. you a lot of them won't qualify. After the informed consent, some will say, eh, I'm not sure I want to do this, or I only want people who are really motivated to be in the study to be in the study. I found out the hard way those are the dropouts people were kind of like all right maybe i'll do it i was like no you go home and think about it and if you're completely sure you come back and then um carrying out the study itself so think about this if i have a study and let's say i'm having two parallel design with 15 subjects in each group which is try generally to get more but let's say i get 30 Uh, a 10-week study with each let's say each session is an hour to carry out it's three days a week that's 900 man hours every one of my studies is personally supervised so they basically each subject gets personal training and they wow. my research assistants sit there with their stuff well, we don't have watches anymore we have we have smartphones that will time down the exact uh, rest interval so they'll be clocked on the rest interval. everything is uh every rep of every set of every session is personally supervised 900 man-hours of time, that, that's kind of, then you have to do the analysis and the write-up and then submitting the study for review and revisions. And uh, it's a grueling process that is extremely time intensive. And it's, um, you know, people, a lot of times the, what I call the armchair researchers who kind of look at PubMed and say, if you understand what goes into a study, I've, once I've become a researcher, because I was a practitioner too and I did I committed a lot of the same atrocities in, in making certain judgments. You start to realize why researchers do certain things. They have reasons a lot of times they're logistical reasons. And by the way, it's also a matter you've got to get funding to, if nothing else, to hopefully pay for subjects. If you don't pay for, you don't remunerate the subjects, they might not stick in the study. Uh, so they have less of an incentive a lot of times. Uh, bottom line, if you want to carry out research, be prepared for a grueling and especially the applied research. Now, if you're doing things, I'll then say if you some of the acute studies much easier to carry right. out. If you're doing an EMG study, I mean, you can knock those things out in a couple of weeks uh, or in some of the other acute related studies that people do. Uh, but your training studies are very, very time intensive.
0: And I imagine um, some notes I had in, I think it's some of the not complaints, but some of the people who necessarily don't like the research as much or don't use it as heavily, they prefer maybe anecdotes somewhat more is because getting actually advanced trainees to commit to a research, to to be a participant in research, I imagine can be quite difficult. And then like you said, even 10 weeks that's a lot of time and commitment and money that has to be put up front. So to imagine months of training and try and get like mesocycles, macro cycles, try and be done, it's maybe unrealistic.
1: Um, for me, it's it's almost impossible to do a study that's more than, let's say 10, 12 weeks, because yeah. you're really fitting it into a semester. Once the semester is over, students go away. They they have a vacation, you're done. or And then there's sicknesses or illnesses where they're out for periods of time. So you, Really, to for me, you need to confine it where you know the subjects will be available. Uh, I even have some trouble. I one of the questions I have to ask: Are you going away for spring break? So we have, let's say, in the, in the spring, we have a break of ten days, roughly, from school. You get students that go away. But to your point about the advance, so yeah, there certainly general. It's called generalizability, the ability to generalize a study, the results of the study, to another population. Uh, I think that is. Certainly, it's it's relevant, and that's why I focused on more more advanced subjects. But my subjects aren't bodybuilders. Like when I get, actually, some of them are pretty jacked. But uh, these are not people you would be considered high-level bodybuilders. And then the bodybuilder would say, well, are you, how can I use that? You can. It, it, it's We're not space aliens. You know, it's not like you're doing it on space aliens or on road. So there's... <laughs> There's a lot yeah. of generalizability from a resistance trained subject to a bodybuilder. Now, it's not exact. And yeah, you then have to use certain, uh, you, you have to take that with a certain degree of, of circumspection uh, in terms of, but that that's not how, it, so again, people are looking, and I think this is a very important point. People look to research to provide answers. They don't. They provide guidelines. Research is never going to tell you what to do. So you want to look at the research, you want to look at a body of research, try to synthesize what the results are, look at who the, you need the generalizability aspect, where is it in untrained subjects, was it in trained subjects, what is the relevant, certain things might be very relevant from untrained, even to trained subjects. Certain things would have much less relevance. So you have to look at what are you studying, What what is the, what, how is the study designed, and these are things that unfortunately I, I think uh, well, look, one of my hobby horses has been to promote an evidence-based culture and to teach people to be self-sufficient, not just listen to me or to my colleagues who are evidence-based professionals, but to be able to go and look for yourself and make decisions. But when you don't have the training, uh, there are gaps in the ability to do that. And one thing that I've seen is that uh, it can lead to improper conclusions where if you don't have the tools to be able to synthesize this information properly you can come to conclusions that might not certainly that I think someone who does have those tools might not agree with mm-hmm. and um, that is why I have the over I think the overriding thing with research is that it is never going to tell you give you an answer as to how to train but it can provide basic guidelines and the analogy that I like to use is I don't know if you've ever been deep sea fishing? No uh, if you go out deep sea fishing, You can just take a boat out and drop your line in the ocean but there might not be fish there so if you can go out you have what's called sonar where you can actually find the fish you can be the best fisherman in the world if there's no fish around you're not catching fish and you can kind of think of research as the sonar that it's getting you into an area where you can start to develop better individual recommendations when i carry out a study for instance let's even say you're doing it on on pro bodybuilders you're going to have still have huge inter-individual responses within those given bodybuilders let's take the drug aspect that say you're doing it on all navi bodybuilders um certain people respond better to certain things than others so again you're looking at means the research is going to report the means of the study it's not going to tell you steve how you should train because you might you're not a mean you're you might be you might be centered around the mean, and, and that's where a good starting point would be for the, as a general rule, but at least you're getting into that ballpark, and then then you can say, you know what, this isn't working as well. Maybe I need to add more volume. Maybe I, I need to decrease the volume. Maybe I need to change my rep scheme. Maybe I need to rest longer or shorter, whatever it is, but uh, it is not, people who dismiss the research, I think are missing the boat. Uh, because they're missing out on a very valuable tool to uh, to guide their training. And and I don't think they understand properly how to use the research in that regard.
0: Fantastic. And that's that answered something that I wanted to be brought up, which was kind of what it means to be evidence-based in terms of using the research with your own experience and that will guide you going forward. And the great thing with science is it gives you that starting point because without it, who do you look to? You look at, I don't know, the flex magazines or the bros around you. And like you've said, the research is a better starting point than that.
1: And to that point, I mean, when I look, I'm, I think once a bro, always a bro. So I started out as a complete bro. And I was, uh, I go back to the era where we had the uh, magazine fitness rags where you had flex and you had muscle and fitness and they were in print where I would get a subscription to them. And I'd go out to the mailbox and I couldn't wait to read the New Routine by Lee Haney, like the bodybuilders of the 90s, Lee Labrata, Lee Haney, Sean Ray, to me they're like classic bodybuilders from that era. And uh I got I did quite well for the first six months, whatever, even up to a year. And then I very rapidly plateaued and realized that hey, I'm not, this isn't working now. And uh, it wasn't until I started taking a more um objective and a more scientific approach that I was then able to continue to progress after that and, uh, that is a I think a big issue is that now we have the internet is just rampant with people taking their shirts off and saying I I have the key to getting you jacked and uh, their key to jacked was picking the right parents and finding the right pharmacology.
0: yeah I think it's a blessing to all of us the fact that You weren't necessarily dealt the genetic card and um, that's made you have to work hard to get the great results you've got. And that's made you a better coach, a better researcher, because now anyone else, like myself included, who hasn't got the great kind of genetics necessarily, we are able to get close to like the thoroughbreds and these guys out there.
1: Exactly. Exactly
0: so uh yeah along that line actually there was a and we talked about kind of update the great thing with you brad is you will update your thoughts it's you're not dogmatic you do the research and you it kind of you take it for what it is it's not like you're trying to get an answer and something um, that came up recently was in the paper with uh Whackridge. um you updated the model of your hypertrophy with the role of metabolic stress and muscle damage and whether or not maybe explain what the update was and then whether or not that has any implications into like the way you're programming.
1: Yeah, so uh, I was really proud of that article. That uh, that paper, the genesis of it was at a conference in Ivascula, the University of Ivascula in Finland, uh, that Juha Homi, who's a good friend and colleague of mine, put on. And I met Henning there. Henning, uh, for those who don't know, Henning Wakaraj is a tremendous molecular researcher, one of the tops of the field. And we all were sitting around over dinner and drinks, as I remember. Um, a nice glass of wine seems to uh, stimulate thoughts about anabolism. And uh, we were talking about uh, just science. And, and, and a lot of what we talked about was about mechanisms. And we started saying, well, we really need to update a paper that I wrote called The Mechanisms of Muscle Hypertrophy and uh, Your Application of Resistance Training, uh, which was published, I can't even remember my own papers now, which was published back in 2010, and it's gone into a lot of the detail about uh, the three potential mechanisms or proposed mechanisms, and that we've just had so much new information that really it needs an updating. And that paper, by the way, it's been cited over 800 times. real labor of love for me at the time it but it's david and people keep citing that and I would wish they would start citing <laughs> the newer papers because it's just more you know when you're doing a review paper there's new information comes and at least in certainly topics like this that uh, make it dated so I would wish they it's nice to have my paper cited but wish they'd start citing the new paper so the interesting thing is is that as much as we've learned i think the new paper what it really does is just synthesizes really the new research it doesn't really change all that much however in terms of we're still nowhere close to understanding what the true mechanisms are and certainly ruling in or out but what we do know is that certainly we knew this back then too was mechanical tension is the primary driving stimulus because if you just have metabolic stress or you just have muscle damage you're not going to see a huge amount of growth you know it really is only under um High loading, or I won't even say high loading, but where there is a sufficient mechanical load, uh, do you see uh, gains in, in muscle mass? So, without that stimulus, nothing else really happens, or little happens after that. So, the question then becomes is there an additive effect? So, whether metabolic stress and muscle damage may contribute to may promote hypertrophy, I think is somewhat less of a concern because. We have data that certainly shows they can, to some extent, even to some extent even without mechanical loading, but it's minimal. And certainly, like metabolic stress has been shown to uh, stave off um, atrophy, muscle atrophy, like during bed rest. Uh, there's been muscle injury studies which show just injuring, let's say, your rat. Not going to do this in humans, of course, but like given a myotoxin, which is a uh, basically subjecting a injury to the muscle of a rodent uh causes hypertrophy and also causes satellite cell accretion and other things the question really is during regular resistance training is there an additive effect of metabolic stress and muscle damage and i think the evidence is equivocal on it i I don't see how anyone looking at it objectively can come to any other conclusions because there's some evidence that it does and some evidence that it doesn't and um none of it is compelling and part of the I think the real issues here are that it's just very difficult to study this topic under controlled conditions. So we can extrapolate, we can have inferential, we can do inferential research where we try to draw inferences from what we're seeing in other studies. I'm going to get too technical here and get off on a good sidetrack. But um, I, the more important thing would be, to, or, or the thing to really understand it, would be to try to isolate in a controlled fashion. That's the essence of a randomized controlled trial. And there's no study that's done that. And, and it's very, it would be very difficult to carry out. There was a study uh, by uh, Felipe Damas, which has been cited for muscle damage a lot. And go look at the study. People are not interpreting the, the study did not in any way refute, or it didn't do anything. It was a really nice study. So I don't wanna, it's not like I'm disputing that it's a well done mm. study. What the study did was shown that the time course of muscle protein synthesis cannot be extrapolated from the initial bout to what happens over time because other factors contribute. Uh, there was, there's been overextrapolations, in my humble opinion, as to the results, and I, again, I think anyone looking at it objectively, and even Felipe, uh, he came on my page, he'll admit that uh, the study is not designed to look at whether muscle damage is involved or isn't in the hypertrophic response. You, you can't draw conclusions really to do that because the, the theory behind muscle damage is not that you need massive muscle damage and that all of a sudden is going to, it's that does muscle damage chronically when it's done in moderation. So lots of muscle damage actually, I don't think there's any doubt it would have a negative effect. It's going to prevent you from training if you have high levels of muscle damage. So with moderate, modest to moderate levels of muscle damage, could that be a contributory uh effector of hypertrophy if done over periods of time and that study didn't look at that and no study has so uh, i will give a hint that we are carrying out a study or not we are we will be so it's now in the process we're just actually getting together the protocol for it but it uh, it will definitely help to uh, answer the question on metabolic stress It will provide i think we've found a way at least part of the question And I'm really excited about that. And hopefully by mid next year, I should have uh, some more
0: data on that. Awesome. Yeah, that's exciting. And I guess part of um, a lot of, like you said, at the moment, it's not really made any practical difference to things. And like you said, data is equivocal. And I I know within the max muscle plan, you had kind of a metabolite phase, I believe. Is that still something, do you still use metabolite based training?
1: I do, but so but not for that purpose, and I, maybe that was um, – I don't remember what I had written at the time, but I do, but it really is for two things. Number one, the build-up of met- – so let's say you're training in a moderate rep range. Uh, so the, the metabolite phase was using higher reps, 15 to 20 reps. And uh, I then uh, progressed from that to a hypertrophy phase where I was training more in like the classic 6 to 12 uh, repetition range. Which, by the way, we can talk about that further, is that uh, that's certainly there's no evidence that that's a magical range. I still do like that. Because I think there is it, it fits nicely because it has a good balance of certain things. It's economical in a, in a lot of ways. So but it's not like that's a magical magic bullet for hypertrophy. But let's say that you want to do that and, and progress that, which I still think can have benefits. Uh, If you're training with high reps, it can help to create greater buffering. So the buildup of metabolites has a reactive effect in the body where where the adaptation is to create greater buffering capacity. Thus, when you then, let's say, do a 10 rep set, which you're going to still build up uh, metabolic uh, byproducts, you will then have greater buffering capacity. So let's say you were only at, um, let's say you're training with 200 pounds in the bench press and you're at rep 10. Uh, if that was you, if you were fatiguing at that level, you can maybe get a couple extra reps at a given RIR uh, because you've built up that buffering capacity. So that would be a benefit there. And I also think, and this is uh, post when I wrote the book, but that there could potentially be benefits for fiber type specific responses of the higher uh, rep ranges. So let's say going upwards of 20 RM. Uh, might have beneficial effects of targeting fibers. That's still speculative, but uh, we actually have a study that is now ongoing that I will have greater in- insights into that by December. But all these things are, as best as I can do, Will we'll, can and will be studied over time.
0: Fantastic. Yeah, is there a, um, in terms of like economical rep ranges, you've done a great work to identify basically there is no hypertrophy rep range like i think it was known as like 8 to 12 or something along those lines and like you said it's very economical but there's potentially avenues to use a wider range which might have applications for injuries or elderly like holder trainees or even fiber types is there a rep range you tend to program within is there reps you stay away from like too high or too low
1: um so i don't think so you can grow muscle and and we've, my, my lab has carried out a number of studies on this and many others as well, we've done meta-analyses. The spectrum of rep ranges up to high number, we've not quantified an exact upper range, um, but certainly up to 30 plus repetitions, you can get roughly equal whole muscle growth. So when we look at, let's say an MRI or an ultrasound, we're actually looking at the size of the entire muscle there's gonna be very little difference assuming you are carrying out the sets with similar efforts. Generally, the sets have been to failure. So it's hard to know if you're going, well, I'll actually go back on that in a second when I, we can talk about failure more. But um, at least when you're training to failure, uh, very little, if any difference. They're extremely similar. And it's it's really been amazing to me. That's one of the things that has uh, been eye-opening. I remember a colleague of mine, Stuart Phillips, who you probably know of at least, uh, carried out a study and he really opened my eyes to this but it was an untrained subject using just leg extension i remember saying to him uh, we were conversing online saying stu uh those are untrained subjects y- you'll see the untrained subjects get jacked from doing cardio but well, i'm going to carry this out and train subjects there's going to be a difference and lo and behold i carried it out in trained subjects and there was zero difference if anything the biceps showed a slightly greater effect for the Higher rep range, so I think it, if nothing else, it opens up a wide choice for, for us. Like you said, if there's injuries, we can use much lighter loads, and assuming you're pushing that person, so you're having less joint-related stresses. Stresses, but uh, you're able to induce similar hypertrophic responses. Uh, and we, at the molecular level, though, could there be individual fiber type-specific responses? That's something that is uh, still. Uh, it, it's relatively unexplored. The research that we have on to, to this point to, to date is equivocal. So there's been some studies that have shown benefits. There's been actually a couple new blood flow restriction training using light loads, which do really provide some somewhat compelling evidence. But it, again, these are topics that uh, need greater exploration before at least I'd be comfortable making recommendations in that, in that realm. But I, I and by the way, one, so I did want to mention, sorry to cut you off, but uh, we did carry out a study showing that 20% of one RM. So we looked at 20 versus 40 versus 60 versus 80% 1RM. Looked in the, uh, doing an arm curl and a leg press so the quads and the biceps. Uh, the 20% showed a suboptimal response, but that was like 70 reps. The 40%, it was like over 40 reps, and that showed roughly equal hypertrophy for 80 uh, 80% 1RM, and I, I kind of don't like using the, um, this was carried out by colleagues of mine in Brazil, I don't like using a percent 1RM model as much because the inter-individual responses yeah. are huge. We carried out a study, we looked at the leg press using 75% 1RM, the lowest, the person with the lowest number of reps got seven reps, the highest was 24. Wow. So we had a, a range of seven to 24 with 12 subjects, and the average was 14. So uh, using a percent one RM, but if we look at a an RM, a suboptimal, a submax RM, uh, I would say 30 to 40 reps probably where you're still in good stead, where you're not going to see a difference. Now, I did also mention we have a paper that was just accepted in collaboration with a group, of really great group that I collaborate with in Sao Paulo. And uh, we looked at failure training with high, uh, high reps versus high reps. Lower reps, So moderate 10 reps, I think we did 10 and 20 for the 10 rep stopping at uh, 65% of their RM, their 10 RM didn't show any differences when you equated the vibe. So we did extra sets to give them the same volume. It did not do that with the 20. So when we stopped at 65%, now here's the kicker though, and this kind of goes to the effective reps, the uh, three, the uh, 10 rep, at 65% was three and a half reps. So they stopped roughly three and a half reps short of failure. Whereas the 20, there were roughly seven reps short of failure.
0: So, yeah, that's a, I mean, over, well, it's double the difference in terms of, and they weren't even necessarily in the effective reps for the, the 20 repetition. Correct. Though.
1: But, but the, the kicker here is that the, uh, the 10 rep group did show uh, comparable hypertrophy regardless of whether they went to failure and the, okay. High rep group did not, so they showed suboptimal results uh, when they did not go to failure. But again, it has to do with where you're stopping short of failure. So is the IR, RIR a hard RIR, or do you need, need to uh, target percentages of your, you know, so at ten reps your RIR is of three is much closer to that effective reps than it is at seven.
0: Yeah, and actually in that case, so you kind of talked about the higher repetitions and the studies have mostly been done towards hitting failure. Is that something you think maybe it's more important to go closer to the failure point in the kind of higher repetitions when you're using those?
1: I do. I, I think that is, uh, it, it just has a logical basis and the limited evidence that we have does seem to show that, but you're you're fatiguing more uh, low threshold motor units in the early phases at that point. And I think it's more difficult to get to the higher Threshold motor units, and there's some evidence that you might not actually get all the high threshold motor units. Uh, If not recruited, certainly fully stimulated. Uh, There is some evidence that uh, acidosis prevents contractility in the fast switch fibers, so that when you're building up a lot of lactic acid, the fast switch fibers might not be able to uh, carry out the functions, and you might be increasing the load on the lower threshold motor units. There is At least some evidence that that occurs. Again, these are things that we we like to think that we know all this stuff, uh, but we don't.
0: And practically, is it harder to train and kind of know where you are in terms of reps and reserve? I think it's been shown in some research that people are better at estimating it with kind of the lower repetitions, higher repetitions. It kind of gets a bit like, "Eh, I'm a bit unsure.
1: Yeah, so think of it this way. When you're, let's say, doing an 8RM, you're getting pretty close to fit. Let's say you're going 7 Eight. Someone points a gun at your head and says, "Get another." Maybe you might be able to get one more rep out of that. Uh, if you were three reps, definitely not. You know, you're, you're kind of done. If you were 20 reps, I'm a failure. Someone points a gun to your head, and I, somewhat depends on the muscle. Like for me, triceps. When I lock out on triceps, I'm done at that point. But I think, well, let's say a multi-joint exercise, you probably are getting another three or four reps. So yeah, I do think that um, the failure point is somewhat hazy when you start getting into the higher reps which in turn would make it more difficult to estimate an rir
0: yeah and when we're talking about failure do is it practical for trainees to think about like a gym failure versus like a research study gun pointed to the kind of do people need to be thinking okay i need to think two reps in reserve that means like if like someone had a gun to my head i could do two more or do we need to be thinking just like um, it does it need to be as hardcore as that
1: that's a good question. So I have, you know, Eric Helms, my colleague, Eric Helms, great researcher has carried out that seminal research. I've never asked him that how he, uh, like if you define how we define failure, I tend to look at failure more practically. Um, and this is another case, you know, we didn't go into it, but I can, I can talk an hour on failure. Failure also is going to depend on, on the exercise itself, versus lower versus upper body and certainly multi joint for a single joint. So if I'm doing biceps curls, I can do a lot more failure training uh, if I'm going with bicep curls than I can with, let's say, a, a T-bar rows. Uh, just you're, you're activating a lot more muscle. It's much more metabolically and neurologically taxing. Uh, so, so these are all factors that come in, and thus I'd be much more confident in, let's say, with a bicep curl and going to true failure than I would with a T-bar row where your lower back is involved and there could be issues. Um, so, so I think that... Those are questions that I think is more up to the individual practitioner and how they view the individual. I, I think those are not questions we can provide hard answers to. Now, I, I do think that it's important to understand how the research was carried out. And uh, often in the write-ups, it's hard to uh, discern that. I don't recall how Eric had written that up, and I think that's a good question. Uh, I don't. If you don't speak to him before I do,
0: we'll,
1: <laughs> we'll get back to each other.
0: Awesome. Yeah, I think it's, I was talking to, I think it was Pascal um, just recently. I was saying how, or maybe it was Scott Stevenson. If you know, I think, you know, Scott Stevenson. Yeah. Sure. 40, yeah. Um, and for me, like chest, if I know if I have one rep left or I don't like it's it's gone. Right. But for something maybe like a leg press or um, back movements, I'll probably go past failure because it's like, I end up using a bit of momentum at some point. Like if I'm trying to aim for it, it's quite easy to kind of, use momentum or something, but some like you said, it's quite different, like it's just different for different movements.
1: Yeah, completely agree.
0: And is there any, I don't know if um you're a fan of kind of any kind of biofeedback in terms of knowing if you're training hard enough for yourself, like in terms of whether or not you're sore in a muscle group, whether that's an indication that you've done, st- like I don't know if you kind of use any biomarkers, any feedback in terms of auto-regulating via that.
1: No, I'm not, I don't think soreness so... I think soreness can be a general gauge if you've created a novel stimulus in the muscle, but even that is very hazy because some people just don't get sore and some people do. And the more trained, there's too many other factors where I, I don't think it's a very good way to gauge training uh, stress. I, I don't necessarily think it's soreness isn't necessarily a bad thing like some people make out. As long as it doesn't hinder, certainly mild soreness isn't. And could that be a sign that you've created a novel stimulus? It might. Uh, so. I think there might be some positives to uh the novel stimulus just cause you don't get s- that. Then what I want to make clear though, is that if you don't get sort it doesn't mean you did not which I think is the tail end and that's why it really is not the greatest gauge. Um, the biomarkers that I like to use are just more, how do I feel? And I, I do think a lot of regulatory approaches. So if I get into the gym and I'm just not feeling it, I'm, I, I will do it, but I'm not going to push as hard. I don't want to kind of uh, send myself over that edge and that, to me, it's, it's, a, uh, it's a marathon, not a sprint. And uh, I think people get overly anal about that, I've got to make every uh, workout count. When you've been training as long as I have, you realize that it's longevity. Uh, you're not going to win a bodybuilding competition in the workout. Uh, now, if you're competing, there's certainly more pressing issues if you have a competition in three months. Then each workout becomes more and more important, and you gotta. If you're not able to train, if there's certain things that are going on. You might rethink when your competition is at that point. If that's the case. But even then, again, one workout is never going to be a make or break. And they do like to use some intuitive uh, approaches in terms of just how do how do I feel. And I think sometimes, by the way, I'll get into the gym and I'm not feeling that great. And when I do, I'm starting to get into it. I really feel good, and yeah. so that it is malleable. But if I'm doing it and I'm just, you know what, this isn't feeling right. And certainly when I'm training, if certain movements, sometimes I'll feel tweaks or something, getting a little older, having a lot of mileage on the the joints. uh, I'm very intuitive about changing, altering my training plan at that point. So I'll go into something different or, or else just stop that particular body part and move on.
0: Fantastic. And actually, that was that leads perfectly into a question. I don't think anyone has ever asked you and I don't think you've talked about it in depth. And I think there's reason for that, because I think it probably doesn't provide a lot of value unless explained. So hopefully we can explain it a little bit. But I'd love to hear what's your kind of basic. Maybe it's changed recently. I don't know. But like your split generally, how do you train Brad? Brad? What does that look like?
1: So it's not the greatest question to ask me at this point because my schedule, uh, I'm really at maintenance phase at this point. I, I struggle to get in as many sessions as I'd like. So my basic idea is to do is to get in a minimum of four days a week. And usually I look to do a uh, upper lower split like on days, but that varies. So I'll be away. I might get one, if I'm away, let's say in Europe, I do a lot of speaking overseas. I might get one day training out of, I'll be away five days, I might get a day training. So what I'll try to do at that point then, I'll alter it and I'll say, all right, I'm getting a full body workout in today. So I try to hit my muscles twice per week if I can. Sometimes that doesn't even happen. Sometimes I'm getting them in one, I do an upper lower and I don't get another session in or something and it, it's just my schedule is so hectic at this point that my visions of competing, not that I have visions but. uh the good news is what I would say from a good perspective is that it's much easier to maintain muscle than it is to build it. So you can do much less uh, and and really maintain, go have very good maintenance. But I, I think my, my training is very efficient. So my general uh, sessions last an hour or less. Uh, look, I would be training if I was competing, I'd be training much differently. Not that I could, but if, if I ever want to do it, I'd have to commit a lot more time. I'd be, doing things that I talk about, like in my books uh, that would, and those are things that I do with my, when I consult with uh, clients. Uh, So again, I think if you're asking me what I do, I'm not sure the utility because most people don't have my schedule. And if they did, then I guess it would be relevant. But if they're looking to build maximum muscle, they wouldn't look to do what I'm doing now. They'd be looked to doing what I, I have done in the past and how I did build my physique and more importantly, how it's evolved because I competed It's been good almost 20 years since I last competed. And my philosophy, if I was going to compete today, my philosophy has changed where I would be doing things quite differently than I did at that time.
0: And I don't know if you could, maybe we can delve into some of those things, but something interesting might be, obviously you talked about an upper lower and whether or not, frequency if you've had any changes in terms of where you like to go in terms of if it you think going quite high or what the maximal height might be and how you might devise like whether or not different muscle groups could have different frequencies and why that might be the case
1: um it's a great question uh my general feeling is is that and this is somewhat taken from the literature but the literature is still somewhat equivocal on this we just carried out a I assume you've seen a meta-analysis fairly recently on this topic. I collaborated with uh, Jozo and, uh, was a, collaborator, a frequent collaborator of mine, and James Krieger, another one, on a meta-analysis. And um, it kind of didn't show much. Uh, and it gave a suggestion that two days a week uh, was superior to one, but that there was no superiority to the higher. And I, I kind of do – that's kind of where I'm settling in over time, that there's a benefit to two. Here's where I think there's some nuances to it. If you get into the higher volumes, I think it becomes more important. Whereas I think even one day a week, like you're on a typical bro split where you're doing, let's say, uh, chest and chest one day and back. If your total volume per session is gonna be fairly low, let's say eight sets, 10 sets max, probably can get away with doing uh, one day a week and not see much difference. When you're starting to get to that eight to 10, let's say you're getting the 16 sets per muscle per week, splitting it up into two sessions of eight, would have a greater utility than uh, just doing one session of 16. So these big bro splits where you're doing massive amounts of volume in a given day, uh, I think they are inferior. I think there is some wasted sets in there that they don't uh, provide the bang for your buck that they would from a protein synthetic standpoint by spreading it out. Got to remember, too, that what I think people lose in some of this is that when you're doing certain types of splits, not upper lower wouldn't count, but if you're doing like a push pull type split, if you're doing, let's say a lat pull down, you're getting the sternal head of the pecs involved. Uh, Lots of the little muscles are, your posterior delts are are working with your rows. So you gotta look at the fact that you are getting other muscles involved. It's not like there's, people think that you're just isolating like the pecs when you're doing exercise and you're not. it's not the way the body works in general so uh, I, I do think that uh, a moderate frequency I try like I said to do twice a week could three days a week be better I think if you're going very high volume it's possible that that might um you know it's certainly not been looked at well studied well but some simulation evidence that uh, my colleague James Krieger has carried out seems to indicate that and uh, that would be a general recommendation that I would
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I guess the more volume you have, the more you can divvy it up or the better if you can spread it out, probably higher quality sessions. And you kind of alluded to potentially some of it being wasted. And I don't know if you think there's a cap and like how much you can do in a single session in terms of people end up, I don't know, they could go, someone could do five and then someone else is doing 15 or five of those reps or sets potentially wasted or you've accumulated too much muscle damage.
1: I would definitely speculate, and certainly this is purely speculative on my point, just based on what we know through research in general, that there would be a big inter-individual response. Some people probably can continue synthesizing proteins with higher amounts. I don't know how uh, anabolic enhancement might uh, enter into that equation as well. Uh, so those are all unknowns as far as I'm concerned. but. I would definitely say in, in every case, all the variables that we're talking about, there are large inter-individual responses and um, you need to take that into account. That's why, again, research will give you general guidelines, but how they work out in practice is up to the individual.
0: And actually, On that note, and this hopefully wouldn't be too long of a conversation, I could see it, it could end up being a whole podcast in itself. But in terms of the individual difference, I wonder if there's that's part of the reason at least, I don't know, I imagine you've seen it, Brad, where there's kind of camps within bodybuilders in terms of like the guys that do really well with low volume, higher intensities, they hit failure a lot more. And then there's the guys who maybe they maybe they leave more reps in reserve or maybe they, they just respond better to high volume and they kind of butt heads a little bit. And maybe it's just the case of the individual difference. There's just these people respond very well to the low volume. These guys are responding very well to the high volume and they're kind of arguing not against the science or anything it's just what they respond to do you think that could be happening
1: completely agree and that is that is supported by the evidence by the literature so my group carried out a paper uh roughly a year ago where we looked at one set versus three sets versus five sets these were resistance trained individuals we found the dose response relationship but to me i thought what the most interesting we have this data and then i hopefully like to publish get this together i just have so many other projects going on, uh, and we're trying to find the right statistical approach to look at it. There's, there's issues in terms of looking at correlations and, and other uh, aspects in terms of how we would go about finding responders, non-responders, uh, but what we did find, I used what's called the smallest worthwhile change, a lot of the people responded very well to just a single set. It was just the differences were that more people were responders to the higher volume. so just some people did not respond well and th- and by the way, there's a new study out, uh, which is to me I think probably the best controlled study that I've seen on the topic. It's by a group out ad- it was a collaboration between Denmark and Norway, I believe. So the uh, Scandinavian countries, very good researchers they did a this was I mean it was mind-boggling the detail they they had. Uh, so it's published, it's actually available now online. I don't know whether it's been published, but they did a pre-pub on it. Basically, they published their data ahead of time while it's being uh, reviewed. But check this out. So they looked at um, a low volume versus a high volume condition within subjects. So one leg was assigned to a higher volume, which was roughly 15 sets of leg extensions per week, and the other leg was assigned to a low volume, which was five sets of leg extensions per, per week. And uh, really interesting findings, The um, overall there was greater effects for the higher volume versus the lower volume. It wasn't all that great, the, the overall results, there were about 5% versus 3%. It was done with MRI, which is a gold standard, so really, uh, really good, compelling evidence that just that there was an effect. But um, they also did, by the way, they did biopsy, so they looked at uh, muscle protein synthesis. They looked at, um, oh, they looked at ribosome biogenesis. All these markers of hypertrophy, all greater for the higher volume, on general on a mean basis. But what I thought was more compelling and just more interesting was that they then did a sub-analysis of right versus left in each person. So did were they equal? Were they did one have greater than the other? And that's where, so um, roughly half the subjects had no difference between right and left leg. So they could do five, wrap, five sets or 15 sets and there was roughly the same hypertrophy. 40% had greater hypertrophy and some substantially greater hypertrophy in the higher volume leg. So 40% would be, I guess you'd consider them responders. But only 9% and it was very, it was very close to being almost not, uh, you know, on the line, so a better results with the lower volume. So uh, it shows that volume is, is a driver of hypertrophy, but that like you're saying, some people do quite well. And I think that's well supported now with the literature that volume really is only a driver, or it's always going to be a driver because you can just go to ridiculous, hey, I can do one set every, remember Mike yeah. Menser was starting to go in his later days when he got a little loony and he was saying, you don't need to, you need to train once every 10 days, just one, one session. Well you need. It's like he had no, it was based on some philosophy, you know, quoting <laughs> Kant. Um, so, but certainly there's gonna be, we, we all know, obviously there's a dose response to a certain point, but I think when we start to get to higher volumes, it becomes a uh, highly individual. And that some people are much more responsive than others, just based upon the, the literature that we have, that, that has been done, which I think is quite compelling. And just, you'd have to just use general logic and things like that, like you said, from what we see anecdotally.
0: Fantastic. And on that note, I guess when people are listening to that, it sounds like if you can do the volume and you can like, I, I guess what I'm trying to ask is volume seems like it's, it's important and potentially doing more could benefit you. And the research seems to allude to that. Do you have any way of, with your clients and maybe with yourself and how you identify whether or not you can appreciate for more, say you're getting results from maybe 10 sets, do you have a kind of way to assess whether or not they might do even better with like 12 or even up to like 15 or more?
1: Yeah, so so this is where for me and my personal belief, and there's this is somewhat supported, but. That volume uh, is, certainly has a good logical basis. Volume should not, we shouldn't think of volume as how much you should do over the life of your career. It should be periodized. That cycling volume is just the most logical thing. And, and, and I think this is another case where when we look at some of the studies and even just certainly the anecdote, people say I do really well on the lower volume, doesn't mean that if maybe they did a small, short cycle of higher volume that it might not spur on greater growth with them like those are all that 's why anecdote is not evidence uh, that's just personal experience. so maybe not for them they'd have to try it to see. but based on my experience, which is quite extensive and just uh, logic and the limited amount of research we have and certain inferential uh, aspects from, from research that we have, uh, the body can tolerate high stressors. So volume is a stress, just like other stresses, for short periods of time and thrive. So you can thrive when you are subjected with a very big stress in your life for fairly short periods of time when you continually spread out that stress over time. So if you're in a, let's say a horrible relationship or whatever, you can thrive over. It's not going to necessarily negatively affect you over short periods of time that's spread out over six months or a year. And that goes with other Certainly, illnesses can, same things can happen. Um, So, similarly, if you uh, create a, we know that the body adapts through a stress that it's not used to, so a a challenge to the body beyond its practical resources. If you promote that stress for a short period of time and then pull back and then, again, go, let's say, in a stepwise fashion, go back to a lower and then moderate and then higher volume. Uh, that to me is the essence of pushing the body to its to its limit where you can go to the edge of a cliff but not go over that cliff. So kind of that's the analogy I like to use. Once you're over the cliff, that's your overtraining your, your negative response. And it's, it is a fine line. How do I go about doing that? So I have a basic template that I use. That's why research creates um, it gives you guidelines, so like 10, 15, 20, you start with 10, 15, 20, and maybe slightly more. But that's always then you see how someone's responding if they're not promo- To me, it's always intuitive. I, I like Mike's, uh, Israel tells um, your uh, M, uh, maximal effective volume. Is that right?
0: There, his M-E-V. volume landmarks, MEV, um, yeah. minimum effective volume.
1: Minimum effective volume, right. Uh, I, but I, I think that to me, it's, I do it a little more intuitively. Like Mike, I like that Mike tries to have objective measures. Uh, I have to use that more, I haven't in practice, but I think to me the downside, I've always kind of resisted that because I think once you start seeing levels go down, it to me starts to indicate an overtraining response and that to me is a problem because if you're at overtraining, I've spoken to Mike about it and um, he's somewhat assuaged that. So, uh, but I've always found it kind of easy to do, somewhat intuitively, uh, if there's better ways I'm always open to that. Here's the other thing that I'd, I'd say about volume, which uh, to me, I think this is the one thing that, my, that I've changed my opinion on based on some of the research that we've carried out and some of the other new research that has come out and that, is, that have, I'm privy to it's coming out, is that um, there, I think there is a benefit to targeting certain muscle groups. Uh, the way I like to look at volume is is that your body has an overall ability to recover from a certain amount of volume because it's a, a systemic response. Overtraining yeah. is systemic, and um, like I said, you then have to factor in things like same with failure with are the, they let's say lateral raises versus shoulder press, military press, uh, leg extension versus squats. So certain exercises are going to be more taxing from a volume uh, respect than others. But for muscles that have, that are lagging, I like to think of volume as a budget, whereby you will allocate more volume to what is needed and less volume to what is a strong point, assuming that you're looking to be symmetrical. And uh, assuming then that you a responder to volume, that potentially can allow you to, to get extra growth from.
0: Fantastic. Brad, that was brilliant. Um, that study sounds really interesting as well. I think actually, I think I may have spoken to Scott Stevenson even about it partially. Um, he brought it up, and I, that's it's just fascinating to see those sort of ones done. And maybe they do some on like art, different arms and things as well at some point. And I'm sure you have many things in the works. And again, I want to say a massive thank you for you coming on, spending the time with me. I always enjoy our chats massively. And I think. Uh, The audience value them massively as well. I want to make sure people, if they want to find your work, um, obviously you've published books, um, you have your website, you're on Instagram as well. I want to make sure people can find you. Where do you think is the best place?
1: Um, I'm all over Instagram. So that's been at this point kind of my primary um, social media outlet, but I still am on Facebook and I do a lot on Twitter. I share a lot of research and it's kind of more my research area. Uh, on social media, but uh, you just Google me and you'll get all the info you
0: want. Fantastic. That's great. You can just, I want to get to the point where people can Google my name and find, find what they need at the moment. I think you probably get some guy dancing or something. I can't remember. I Googled my name a while ago, Uh, but yes, you can. And I can only highly recommend Brad's books. Um, They're all fantastic. And uh, it just puts everything in place and you learn a lot of detail about these subjects. So if you've got kind of, the itch for more, that's definitely where you want to go. And like you said, there's loads of research out there too. So, again, thank you, Brad. And thank you to all the listeners for coming and listening.
1: Always a pleasure, Steve.